Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Bygone Tales, Episode 12. Tonight we have three stories. Our first story for the evening is by William Hope Hodgson, who you may remember from Episode 2. Hodgson was born in 1877. He is probably most well-known for his short stories, most a lot of which are set at, at sea and span the genres of horror, fantastic fiction, and science fiction. He also gained some prominence as a bodybuilder in his early life, and in 1899, at the age of 22, he opened the W.H. Hodgson School of Physical Culture in Blackburn, England. He was killed in the Fourth Battle of Ypres from a direct hit by an artillery shell in April 1918. Date, 1965, Modern Warfare. An extract from the phonographic by William Hope Hodgson. The new war machine, coming as it has so promptly after the remarkable speech by Mr. John Russell, MP, in the House on the 20th of last month, will find the narrow path of public opinion paved for its way into actual use. As Mr. Russell put the matter, A crisis has come which must be faced. The modern fighting man, soldier, butcher, call him what you will, has made definite representations that he must know in what way he benefits the community at large by killing or being killed in the gigantic butcheries which follow in the wake of certain political talkie-talkies. In fact, like the prisoners of last century, if he must tread the mill, in his case, the mill of death, he is desirous of knowing that it is doing some actual work. He has become an individual thinking unit, a unit capable of using the brain of which he is possessed. He has risen above the semi-hysterical fervor of the ignoramus of half a century ago, who went forth to kill with the feeling that he was engaged in a glorious, nay, the most glorious vocation to which man can be called, a state of mind which was carefully fostered by men of higher attainments, though not always of higher intellect. These later put forward in favor of the profession of human butcher that the said butchery of their fellows, as the running of the same risk, were the best means of developing all that is highest and most heroic in man. We of this age, Herr Odutz, though, even now there will be some who still swear by the ancient belief pointing to the nations of the classics and showing that when they ceased to be soldiers, they fell from the heights they had gained by arms and became soft of fiber and heart. To the first of these, I would reply that in these days of high national intellectuality, we are realizing that the killing of some mother's son does not help the logical solution of the question, to whom should the South Pole belong? More, that the power of universal law, the loom of which even now we can see, will usurp the place of the ancient butcher. In other words, that intellectual sanity will reign in place of unreasoning foolish slaughter. To the second danger, that of becoming soft of fiber and heart, I will oppose the fact that to lead the life of a civilian in this present century of ours calls for as much sheer pluck, heroic courage, and fortitude as was possessed by the most blood-drunken human butcher of old days. If any have doubts on this point, 
let them try to imagine the ancient Roman soldier hero facing the problem of 270 miles per hour in one of our up-to-date monorail cars. Or, further, a trip round the Earth in one of the big flying boats at a speed of from 600 to 800 miles an hour. And they will, I think, agree that there is some little reason with me. Oh, I hear the cry. That's because we're used to it. Let them get used to it and they wouldn't mind. True, my friends. But so were the ancients used to slaughter. Almost as much as we're used to our monorail and flying boats. Yet, there were cowards then, who shirked fighting and never won free from their cowardice, for all that they lived in the very atmosphere of war. There are cowards today who have never traveled above the puny rate of a hundred miles an hour, and who never will, though all about them is the roar of our higher speeds. For the rest, the courage of the man of today is well suited to the needs of his time, far more so than if he were gifted with the sort possessed by some ancient hero. But, to get back to our muttons, as an ancient saying has it, War is still with us. So long as nations remain separate, having separate and conflicting interests, so long will the profession of human butcher remain a hideous fact, until the time when we are agreed to form a world nation, policed instead of butchered into order. A world nation is the cure for the causeless slaughter which obtains at the present date. Yet, it is a cure that lies in the future, and our aim at present is to make the best of that which we cannot escape. To this end, I have two propositions to make, though they might both come under one head, and that is economy. The first would deal with expenditure. It will be remembered that up to the summer of 51, the gay uniform was not entirely discarded among the home regiments. On that date, however, it was finally abandoned and universal brown became the accepted covering. Yet in many ways, this uniform is needlessly expensive, and I would suggest in place thereof the usual butcher's blue overalls. This only, by the way. I would dismiss all officers and appoint in place thereof to each hundred men a head butcher. This will be sufficient for the present. I will explain later other ways in which the expenditure might be still further cut down. The second portion of my proposals for economy deals with an innovation. Receipts. Yes, I would have receipts. Given the fact that there is, and seems likely yet a while to be, a need for human butchering, then, in the name of any small fragment of common sense we may possess, let us put the thing on a saner, more business-like footing, and save the meat. Loud cheers. Aye, save the meat. Economize. Treat it as the business it is, and a nasty, dirty business at that. Like reasonable people, go to the best, the most direct way to get it done and over as quickly and efficiently as possible. We could, in the event of my suggestion being adopted, point out to the victim that they were, at least, not dying quite in vain. Mr. Russell then went on to make suggestions. War would, of course, have to be conducted on somewhat different lines than has been the case hitherto. 
Also, we should have to make international agreements that all nations should conform to the new method of doing our killing. But no doubt it could be arranged. The item of economy would prove a mighty argument in its favor. As to the actual scheme, there are several which I have in my mind, any one of which would do. To take one, we will suppose that there is a matter in dispute between two nations, and we are one of them. Well, we would, according to my idea, have a committee to study its importance, size, risks, desirabilities, etc. Everything, in fact, except the morality of it. Then we would refer to statistics of various kills in former butcheries, and so, taking all the points into consideration, strike an average and form an estimate of the number to be killed to make a sure thing of it. The other side would do the same, and neither would know the number of men the other had voted to the settling of the business. This would supply a splendid element of chance, well calculated to give opportunities for developing all the necessary heroic qualities which any man could hope to have. The next part of the work would be to pick the men. They would be chosen by lot, so many from each station, a method well calculated to improve their nerve, hardihood, manhood, stoicism, fortitude, and many other good qualities. As the last stand of those who uphold war has been its beneficial effect on the manhood of the nation, it will be seen that my proposition must meet with their approval. For, before a blow has been struck, a large proportion of the training has been accomplished. Having now picked our butchers, or victims, their numbers as per estimate of the meat office, <laughs> I mean the war office, we would turn them into a big pen, along with the chosen number which the opposing nation had voted as being necessary to accomplish their purpose. Each man would be provided with a knife and steel, and, commencing work at the usual working hour of the country in which the butchering is effected, would proceed to the slaying with all the speed at their command. The survivors would, of course, be esteemed the winners. The slaying over, the meat would be packed and sold by the winning side to defray expenses. In this wise, minimizing the cost of a somewhat unpleasant, but, according to many learned men, a very necessary and honorable business. This meat should sell well, for I can imagine that there should be considerable satisfaction in eating one's enemy. Moreover, I am told it is a very old custom. I would suggest, in closing, that the butchers receive instruction from the head butchers in the proper methods of killing. At present, they put far more science into destroying bullocks quickly and comfortably than in performing the same kind office for their fellows. If a man must be killed, at least let him be treated no more barbarously than a bullock. Further, they would have to learn, when killing, not to spoil the joints. Let every man understand his trade. Here, Mr. John Russell made an end amid profound cheering from the whole house. That story was originally published in the magazine New Age in 1908.
Our next story for the evening was written by Michael Jean-Pierre Verne. He was born in 1861. He was a writer, editor, and probably most well-known as the son of Jules Verne. Because he was a bit of a wild child, his father actually sent him to the Metre Penal Colony for six months in 1876. Now, at this point in time, he's actually probably most well-known for the controversy surrounding the authorship of his work, as many of his stories were originally attributed to his father. He passed away on March 5, 1925, and as a personal note, I was actually born on the 50th anniversary of his death. An Express of the Future by Michael Verne Take care, cried my conductor. There's a step. Safely descending the step thus indicated to me, I entered a vast room illuminated by blinding electric reflectors, the sound of our feet alone breaking the solitude and silence of the place. Where was I? What had I come there to do? Who was my mysterious guide? Questions unanswered, a long walk in the night, iron doors opened and reclosed with a clang, stairs descending, it seemed to me, deep into the earth. That is all I could remember. I had, however, no time for thinking. No doubt you are asking yourself who I am, said my guide. Colonel Pierce, at your service. Where are you? In America, at Boston, in a station. A station? Yes, the starting point of the Boston to Liverpool Pneumatic Tubes Company. And, with an explanatory gesture, the colonel pointed out to me two long iron cylinders, about a meter and a half in diameter, lying upon the ground a few paces off. I looked at these two cylinders, ending on the right in a mass of masonry, and closed on the left with heavy metallic caps, from which a cluster of tubes were carried up to the roof, and suddenly I comprehended the purpose of all of this. Had I not, a short time before, read in an American newspaper an article describing this extraordinary project for linking Europe with the New World by means of two gigantic submarine tubes? An inventor had claimed to have accomplished the task, and that inventor, Colonel Pierce, I had before me. In thought, I realized the newspaper article. Complacently, the journalist entered into the details of the enterprise. He stated that more than 3,000 miles of iron tubes, weighing over 13 million tons, were required, with the number of ships necessary for the transport of this material, 200 ships of 2,000 tons, each making 33 voyages. He described this armada of science bearing the steel to two special vessels, on board of which the ends of the tubes were joined to each other and encased in a triple netting of iron, the whole covered with a resinous preparation to preserve it from the action of the seawater. Coming at once to the question of working, he filled the tubes, transformed into a sort of pea-shooter of interminable length, with a series of carriages to be carried with their travelers by powerful currents of air, in the same way that dispatches are conveyed pneumatically round Paris. A parallel with the railways closed the article, and the author enumerated with enthusiasm the advantages of the new and audacious system. According to him, there would be, in passing through these tubes, a suppression of all nervous trepidation, thanks to the interior surface being of finely polished steel. Equality of temperature secured by means of currents of air. 
by which the heat could be modified according to the seasons. Incredibly low fares, owing to the cheapness of construction and working expenses. Forgetting, or waving aside, all considerations of the question of gravitation and of wear and tear. All that now came back to my mind. So then, this utopia had become a reality, and these two cylinders of iron at my feet passed thence under the Atlantic and reached to the coast of England. In spite of the evidence, I could not bring myself to believe in the thing having been done. That the tubes had been laid, I could not doubt, but that men could travel by this route? Never. Was it not impossible even to obtain a current of air of that length? I expressed that opinion aloud. Quite easy, on the contrary, protested Colonel Pierce. To obtain it, all that is required is a great number of steam fans similar to those used in blast furnaces. The air is driven by them with a force which is practically unlimited, propelling it at the speed of 1,800 kilometers an hour, almost that of a cannonball so that our carriages, with their travelers, in the space of two hours and forty minutes, accomplish the journey between Boston and Liverpool. Eighteen hundred kilometers an hour, I exclaimed. Not one less! And what extraordinary consequences arrive from such a rate of speed? The time at Liverpool, being four hours and forty minutes in advance of ours, a traveler starting from Boston at nine o'clock in the morning, arrives in England at 3.53 in the afternoon. Isn't that a journey quickly made? In another sense, on the contrary, our trains in this latitude gain over the sun more than 900 kilometers an hour, beating that planet hand over hand. Quitting Liverpool at noon, for example, the traveler will reach the station where we now are at 34 minutes past nine in the morning. That is to say earlier than he started. <laughs> I don't think one can travel quicker than that. I did not know what to think. Was I talking with a madman? Or must I credit these fabulous theories, in spite of the objections which rose in my mind? Very well, so be it, I said. I will admit that travelers may take this mad-brained route, and that you can obtain this incredible speed. But when you have got this speed, how do you check it? When you come to a stop, everything must be shattered to pieces. Not at all, replied the colonel, shrugging his shoulders. Between our tubes, one for the out, the other for the home journey, consequently worked by currents going in opposite directions, a communication exists at every joint. When a train is approaching, an electric spark advertises us of the fact. Left to itself, the train would continue its course by reason of the speed it had acquired. But, simply by the turning of a handle, we are able to let in the opposing current of compressed air from the parallel tube, and, little by little, reduce to nothing the final shock or stopping. But what is the use of all these explanations? Would not a trial be a hundred times better? And without waiting for an answer to his questions, the colonel pulled sharply a bright brass knob projecting from the side of one of the tubes. A panel slid smoothly on its grooves, and in the opening left by its removal, I perceived a row of seats, on each of which two persons might sit comfortably side by side. The carriage, explained the colonel. Come in. I followed him without offering any objection, and the panel immediately slid back into place. 
By the light of an electric lamp in the roof, I carefully examined the carriage I was in. Nothing could be more simple. A long cylinder, comfortably upholstered along which some fifty armchairs, in pairs, were ranged in twenty-five parallel ranks. At either end, a valve regulated the atmospheric pressure. That at the farther end, allowing breathable air to enter the carriage. That in front, allowing for the discharge of any excess beyond a normal pressure. After spending a few moments on this examination, I became impatient. Well, I said, are we not going to start? Going to start, cried the colonel. We have started. Started? Like that? Without the least jerk? Was it possible? I listened attentively, trying to detect a sound of some kind that might have guided me. If we had really started, if the colonel had not deceived me in talking of a speed of 1,800 kilometers an hour, we must already be far from any land, under the sea. Above our heads, the huge, foam-crusted waves, even at that moment, perhaps taking it for a monstrous sea serpent of an unknown kind, Whales were battering with their powerful tails our long iron prison. But I heard nothing but a dull rumble, preceded, no doubt, by the passage of our carriage, and, plunged in boundless astonishment, unable to believe in the reality of all that had happened to me, I sat silently, allowing the time to pass. At the end of about an hour, a sense of freshness upon my forehead suddenly aroused me from the torpor into which I had sunk by degrees. I raised my hand to my brow. It was moist. Moist? Why was that? Had the tube burst under pressure of the waters? A pressure which could not but be formidable, since it increases at the rate of an atmosphere every ten meters of depth? Had the ocean broken in upon us? Fear seized upon me. Terrified, I tried to call out, and, and I found myself in my garden, generously sprinkled by a driving rain the big drops of which had awakened me. I had simply fallen asleep while reading the article devoted by an American journalist to the fantastic projects of Colonel Pierce, who also, I much fear, has only dreamed. This story was originally printed in the Strand Magazine in 1895, and, due to an error by the publisher, was actually originally attributed to his father, Jules. Our last story was written by Jack London. He was born in 1876 as John Griffith Cheney. He was an American author, probably most well-known for his novels Call of the Wild, White Fang, and the Sea Wolf. He was also a passionate activist known for his work on unionization, socialism, workers' rights, and animal rights. He passed away in 1916 at the age of 40. Now, in his early life, he had been really a picture of health, a very robust individual. But time spent in some very extreme climates like the Klondike and the tropics took a toll on his health, and he actually suffered from an, a number of diseases. At the time of his death, he was suffering from dysentery, late-stage alcoholism, uremia, and was known to be a heavy user of morphine due to extreme pain. A Curious Fragment by Jack London 
The capitalist or industrial oligarch Roger Vanderwater, mentioned in the narrative, has been identified as the ninth in the line of Vanderwaters that controlled for hundreds of years the cotton factories of the South. This Roger Vanderwater flourished in the last decades of the 26th century after Christ, which was the 5th century of the terrible industrial oligarchy that was reared upon the ruins of the early republic. From internal evidence, we are convinced that the narrative which follows was not reduced to writing till the 29th century. Not only was it unlawful to write or print such matters during that period, but the working class was so illiterate that only in rare instances were its members able to read and write. This was the dark reign of the overman, in whose speech the great mass of the people were characterized as the herd animals. All literacy was frowned upon and stamped out. From the statute books of the times may be instanced that black law that made it a capital offense for any man, no matter of what class, to teach even the alphabet to a member of the working class. Such stringent limitation of education to the ruling class was necessary if that class was to continue to rule. One result of the foregoing was the development of the professional storytellers. These storytellers were paid by the oligarchy, and the tales they told were legendary, mythical, romantic, and harmless. But the spirit of freedom never quite died out, and agitators, under the guise of storytellers, preached revolt to the slave class. That the following tale was banned by the oligarchs, we have proof from the records of the criminal police court of Ashbury, wherein, on January 27th, 2734, one John Turney, found guilty of telling the tale in a boozing ken of laborers, was sentenced to five years penal servitude in the borax mines of the Arizona desert. Editor's Note. Listen, my brothers, and I will tell you a tale of an arm. It was the arm of Tom Dixon, and Tom Dixon was a weaver of the first class, in a factory of that hell-hound and master Roger Vanderwater. This factory was called Hell's Bottom by the slaves who toiled in it, and I guess they ought to know. And it was situated in Kingsbury, at the other end of the town from Vanderwater's summer palace. You do not know where Kingsbury is? There are many things, my brothers, that you do not know, and it is sad. It is because you do not know that you are slaves. When I have told you this tale, I should like to form a class among you for the learning of written and printed speech. Our masters read and write, and possess many books, and it is because of that that they are our masters, and live in palaces, and do not work. When the toilers learn to read and write, all of them, they will grow strong. Then they will use their strength to break their bonds, and there will be no more masters and no more slaves. Kingsbury, my brothers, is in the old state of Alabama. For three hundred years the Vanderwaters have owned Kingsbury and its slave pens and factories, and slave pens and factories in many other places and states. You have heard of the Vanderwaters. Who has not? But let me tell you things you do not know about them. The first Vanderwater was a slave, even as you and I. Have you got that? He was a slave, and that was over three hundred years ago. 
His father was a machinist in the slave pen of Alexander Burrell, and his mother was a washerwoman in the same slave pen. There is no doubt about this. I am telling you the truth. It is history. It is printed, every word of it, in the history books of our masters, which you cannot read because your masters will not permit you to learn to read. You can understand why they will not permit you to learn to read when there are such things in the books. They know, and they are very wise. If you did read such things, you might be wanting in respect to your masters, which would be a dangerous thing to your masters. But I know, for I can read, and I am telling you that I have read with my own eyes in the history books of our masters. The first Vanderwater's name was not Vanderwater. It was Vange, Bill Vange, the son of Jurgis Vange, the machinist, and Laura Carnley, the washerwoman. Young Bill Vange was strong. He might have remained with the slaves and led them to freedom. Instead, however, he served the masters and was well rewarded. He began his service when yet a small child as a spy in his home slave pen. He is known to have informed on his own father for seditious utterances. This is fact. I have read it with my own eyes in the records. He was too good a slave for the slave pen. Alexander Burrell took him out, while yet a child, and he was taught to read and write. He was taught many things, and he was entered in the secret service of the government. Of course, he no longer wore the slave dress, except for disguise at such times when he sought to penetrate the secrets and plots of the slaves. It was he, when but eighteen years of age, who brought that great hero and comrade, Ralph Jacobus, to trial and execution in the electric chair. Of course, you have all heard the sacred name of Ralph Jacobus, but it is news to you that he was brought to his death by the first Vanderwater, whose name was Vange. I know, I have read in the books. There are many interesting things in the books. And after Ralph Jacobus died his shameful death, Bill Vange's name began the many changes it was to undergo. He was known as Sly Vange far and wide. He rose high in the secret service, and he was rewarded in grand ways. But still, he was not a member of the master class. The men were willing that he should become so. It was the women of the master class who refused to have Sly Vange one of them. Sly Vange gave good service to the masters. He had been a slave himself, and he knew the ways of the slaves. There was no fooling him. In those days, the slaves were braver than now, and they were always trying for their freedom. And Sly Vange was everywhere, in all their schemes and plans, bringing their schemes and plans to naught, and their leaders to the electric chair. It was in 2255 that his name was next changed for him. It was in that year that the Great Mutiny took place. In that region, west of the Rocky Mountains, 17 millions of slaves strove bravely to overthrow their masters. Who knows if Sly Vange had not lived, but that they would have succeeded. But Sly Vange was very much alive. The masters gave him supreme command of the situation. In eight months of fighting, one million and three hundred and fifty thousand slaves were killed. 
Vange, Bill Vange, Sly Vange, killed them, and he broke the great mutiny, and he was greatly rewarded, and so red were his hands with the blood of the slaves that thereafter he was called Bloody Vange. You see, my brothers, what interesting things are to be found in the books when one can read them. And take my word for it, there are many other things even more interesting in the books. And if you will but study with me, in a year's time you can read those books for yourselves. Aye, in six months some of you will be able to read those books for yourselves. Bloody Vange lived to a ripe old age, and always, to the last, he was received in the councils of the masters. But never was he made a master himself. He had first opened his eyes, you see, in the slave pen. But, oh, he was well rewarded. He had a dozen palaces in which to live. He, who was no master, owned thousands of slaves. He had a great pleasure yacht upon the sea that was a floating palace, and he owned a whole island in the sea where toiled ten thousand slaves on his coffee plantations. But in his old age, he was lonely for he lived apart, hated by his brothers, the slaves, and looked down upon by those he had served and who refused to be his brothers. The masters looked down upon him because he had been born a slave. Enormously wealthy, he died, but he died horribly tormented by his conscience, regretting all he had done and the red stain on his name. But with his children, it was different. They had not been born in the slave pen, and by the special ruling of the chief oligarch of that time, John Morrison, they were elevated to the master class. And it was then that the name of Vange disappears from the pages of history. It becomes Vanderwater. And Jason Vange, the son of Bloody Vange, becomes Jason Vanderwater, the founder of the Vanderwater line. But that was three hundred years ago and the Vanderwaters of today forget their beginnings and imagine that somehow the clay of their bodies is different stuff from the clay in your body and mine and in the bodies of all slaves. And I ask you, why should a slave become the master of another slave? And why should the son of a slave become the master of many slaves? I leave these questions for you to answer for yourselves. But do not forget that in the beginning... The Vanderwaters were slaves. And now, my brothers, I come back to the beginning of my tale to tell you of Tom Dixon's arm. Roger Vanderwater's factory in Kingsbury was rightly named Hell's Bottom. But the men who toiled in it were men, as you shall see. Women toiled there too, and children, little children. All that toiled there had the regular slave rights under the law but only under the law, for they were deprived of many of their rights by the two overseers of Hell's Bottom, Joseph Clancy and Adolf Munster. It is a long story, but I shall not tell all of it to you. I shall tell only about the arm. It happened that, according to the law, a portion of the starvation wage of the slaves was held back each month and put into a fund. This fund was for the purpose of helping such unfortunate fellow workmen as happened to be injured by accidents or to be overtaken by sickness. 
As you know with yourselves, these funds are controlled by the overseers. It is the law, and so it was that the fund at Hell's Bottom was controlled by the two overseers of a cursed memory. Now Clancy and Munster took this fund for their own use. When accidents happened to the workmen, their fellows, as was the custom, made grants from the fund. But the overseers refused to pay over the grants. What could the slaves do? They had their rights under the law, but they had no access to the law. Those that complained to the overseers were punished. You know yourselves what form such punishment takes. The fines for faulty work that is not faulty. The overcharging of accounts in the company's store. The vile treatment of one's women and children. And the allotment to bad machines whereon, work as one will, he starves. Once the slaves of Hell's Bottom protested to Vanderwater. It was the time of the year when he spent several months in Kingsbury. One of the slaves could write. It chanced that his mother could write, and she had secretly taught him as her mother had secretly taught her. So this slave wrote a round robin, wherein was contained their grievances, and all the slaves signed by Mark. And, with proper stamps upon the envelope, the round robin was mailed to Roger Vanderwater. And Roger Vanderwater did nothing, save to turn the round robin over to the two overseers. Clancy and Munster were angered. They turned the guards loose at night on the slave pen. The guards were armed with pick handles. It is said that next day only half of the slaves were able to work in Hell's Bottom. They were well beaten. The slave who could write was so badly beaten that he lived only three months. But before he died, he wrote once more, To what purpose you shall hear. Four or five weeks afterward, Tom Dixon, a slave, had his arm torn off by a belt in Hell's Bottom. His fellow workmen, as usual, made a grant to him from the fund, and Clancy and Munster, as usual, refused to pay it over from the fund. The slave who could write, and who even then was dying, wrote anew a recital of their grievances, and this document was thrust into the hand of the arm that had been torn from Tom Dixon's body. Now, it chanced that Roger Vanderwater was lying ill in his palace at the other end of Kingsbury. Not the dire illness that strikes down you and me, brothers. Just a bit of biliousness, mayhap. Or no more than a bad headache because he had eaten too heartily or drunk too deeply. But it was enough for him, being tender and soft from careful rearing. Such men, packed in cotton wool all their lives, are exceeding tender and soft. Believe me, brothers, Roger Vanderwater felt as badly with his aching head, or thought he felt as badly, as Tom Dixon really felt with his arm torn out by the roots. It happened that Roger Vanderwater was fond of scientific farming, and that on his farm, three miles outside of Kingsbury, he had managed to grow a new kind of strawberry. He was very proud of that new strawberry of his, and he would have been out to see and pick the first ripe one, had it not been for his illness. Because of his illness, he had ordered the old farm slave to bring in personally the first box of the berries. 
All this was learned from the gossip of a palace scullion who slept each night in the slave pen. The overseer of the plantation should have brought in the berries, but he was on his back with a broken leg from trying to break a colt. The scullion brought the word in the night, and it was known that next day the berries would come in, and the men in the slave pen of Hell's Bottom, being men and not cowards, held a council. The slave who could write, and who was sick and dying from the pick-handle beating, said he would carry Tom Dixon's arm. Also, he said he must die anyway, and that it mattered nothing if he died a little sooner. So five slaves stole from the slave pen that night after the guards had made their last rounds. One of the slaves was the man who could write. They lay in the brush by the roadside until late in the morning, when the old farm slave came driving to town with the precious fruit for the master. What of the farm slave being old and rheumatic, and of the slave who could write being stiff and injured from his beating? They moved their bodies about when they walked, very much in the same fashion. The slave who could write put on the other's clothes, pulled the broad-brimmed hat over his eyes, climbed upon the seat of the wagon, and drove on to town. The old farm slave was kept tied all day in the bushes until evening, when the others loosed him and went back to the slave pen to take their punishment for having broken bounds. In the meantime, Roger Vanderwater lay waiting for the berries in his wonderful bedroom. Such wonders and such comforts were there that they would have blinded the eyes of you and me who have never seen such things. The slave who could write said afterward that it was like a glimpse of paradise. And why not? The labor and the lives of ten thousand slaves had gone to the making of that bedchamber while they themselves slept in vile lairs like wild beasts. The slave who could write brought in the berries on a silver tray or platter. You see, Roger Vanderwater wanted to speak with him in person about the berries. The slave who could write tottered his dying body across the wonderful room and knelt by the couch of Vanderwater, holding out before him the tray. Large, green leaves covered the top of the tray, and these the body servant alongside whisked away so that Vanderwater could see. And Roger Vanderwater, propped upon his elbow, saw. He saw the fresh root lying there like precious jewels, and in the midst of it, the arm of Tom Dixon, as it had been torn from his body, well washed, of course, my brothers, and very white against the blood-red fruit. And also he saw, clutched in the stiff, dead fingers, the petition of his slaves who toiled in hell's bottom. Take and read, said the slave who could write, and even as the master took the petition, the body-servant, who till then had been motionless with surprise, struck with his fist the kneeling slave upon the mouth. The slave was dying anyway, and was very weak, and did not mind. He made no sound, and, having fallen over on his side, he lay there quietly, bleeding from the blow on the mouth. The physician, who had run for the palace guards, came back with them, and the slave was dragged upright upon his feet. But as they dragged him up, his hand clutched Tom Dixon's arm from where it had fallen on the floor. 
He shall be flung alive to the hounds, the body servant was crying in great wrath. He shall be flung alive to the hounds. But Roger Vanderwater, forgetting his headache, still leaning on his elbow, commanded silence and went on reading the petition. And while he read, there was silence, all standing upright, the wrathful body servant, the physician, the palace guards, and in their midst the slave, bleeding at the mouth and still holding Tom Dixon's arm. And when Roger Vanderwater had done, he turned upon the slave, saying, If in this paper be one lie, you shall be sorry that you were ever born. And the slave said, I have been sorry all my life that I was born. Roger Vanderwater looked at him closely, and the slave said, You have done your worst to me. I am dying now. In a week I shall. What do you with that? the master asked, pointing to the arm. And the slave made answer, I take it back to the pen to give it burial. Tom Dixon was my friend. We worked beside each other at our looms. There is little more to my tale, brothers. The slave and the arm were sent back in a cart to the pen, nor were any of the slaves punished for what they had done. Instead, Roger Vanderwater made investigation and punished the two overseers, Joseph Clancy and Adolph Munster. Their freeholds were taken from them. They were branded, each upon the forehead. Their right hands were cut off, and they were turned loose upon the highway to wander and beg until they died. And the fund was managed rightfully thereafter for a time, for a time only, my brothers, for after Roger Vanderwater came his son, Albert, who was a cruel master and half-mad. Brothers, that slave who carried the arm into the presence of the master was my father. He was a brave man, and even as his mother secretly taught him to read, so did he teach me. Because he died shortly after from the pick-handle beating, Roger Vanderwater took me out of the slave pen and tried to make various better things out of me. I might have become an overseer in Hell's Bottom, but I chose to become a storyteller, wandering over the land and getting close to my brothers, the slaves, everywhere. And I tell you stories like this, secretly knowing that you will not betray me, for if you did, you know as well as I that my tongue will be torn out, and I shall tell stories no more. And my message is, brothers, that there is a good time coming when all will be well in the world, and there will be neither masters nor slaves. But first, you must prepare for that good time by learning to read. There is power in the printed word, and here I am to teach you to read, and as well there are others to see that you get the books when I am gone along upon my way, the history books wherein you will learn about your masters and learn to become strong even as they. Well, that story was originally published in the collection of short stories, When God Laughs, published in 1906, and is a fine example of work inspired by his socialist beliefs. Well, thank you for joining us this evening and listening to our stories. 
If you feel like contacting us, please do. You can reach us at Gmail. Our address is bygonetales at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page, Bygone Tales Podcast, where we periodically put up a fable or story by authors like Ambrose Bierce. We also have a website. Our website can be found at mccartneylane.com. Click on the link for podcasts and just follow the link to Bygone Tales. On our website, we also have a store that we recently opened. Right now, we just have one item or one design. We have a, a number of items with our Bygone Tales logo on it. If you wish to support the podcast in a financial way, that's a that's a great way. We try to keep the the prices for the merchandise pretty low, and uh, any money brought in will, of course, go towards the upkeep of of the website. Well, thank you for joining us this evening, and we plan to see you again next year. Our next episode should be released on January 1st, and we will be happy to see you in the next year. Until next time. Hey, do you like books? Do you know someone who likes books? I'm going to guess if you're listening to this podcast, the answer to one or both of those questions is yes. Well, as the holiday season approaches, sometimes it can be hard to find those unique gifts. Well, I have a solution for you. I want to present to you Shelf Life Books and Games. They can be found at Shelf Life Rare. It's an eBay store. They have a wonderful selection of signed and limited edition sci-fi and fantasy books, as well as some first editions. Their stock changes on a fairly regular basis, so it's a good idea to keep checking back from time to time, and you never know what kind of little hidden gem you may find floating around there. If you're interested in the game Magic the Gathering, they also have Magic the Gathering graded magic cards. They have all slabbed cards and rare BGS graded cards. Now, I'll admit, I don't know what that means, but they assure me if you're into Magic the Gathering, you will know what that means, and they have a great selection. So, if you're looking for a rare or unique gift, go on over to Shelf Life Rare at eBay and check out their selection. You never know what you may find. You can find the link to their store in our show notes.